Welcome to another episode of Behind the Evidence AODH, a podcast supported by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. I'm one of our co-hosts, Mark LaRochelle, an addiction-focused primary care physician at Boston Medical Center. And I'm Honora Englander, an addiction medicine physician and health services researcher at Oregon Health and Science University. On Behind the Evidence, we seek to engage with recent practice-relevant literature related to substance use. The podcast draws from articles reviewed in the AODH newsletter and aims to understand what's behind the evidence through conversations, including with authors. Excellent. Well, let's jump into today's episode. We're excited to welcome Dr. Noah Kravchik to Behind the Evidence to discuss her recent paper in the International Journal of Drug Policy titled, Has the Treatment Gap for Opioid Use Disorder Narrowed in the U.S.? A Yearly Assessment from 2010 to 2019. Dr. Kravchik, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, So I'm an assistant professor at NYU School of Medicine. Uh, I'm part of the Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy, and I really consider myself a health services researcher. My background is in epidemiology, and I really try and use epidemiologic methods to uh, understand gaps in in services related to substance use. So it's, it's really exciting to be here on this podcast. That's great. All right, why don't we jump in? Um, love to start with what motivated you to do this study and, and reading it again uh, in preparation, it just seems so striking to me how hard it is in the US to get reasonable estimates of who has opioid use disorder, who's receiving treatment. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us about um, what motivated you to do this and approach the work. Sure, so I think this is uh, actually a rare case in which I had been wanting to do this paper for a long time. I think usually kind of research ideas and papers come a little bit more organically, but this is really something I had been thinking about for a while. And I think the motivation was there was actually another paper in AJPH uh, by Chris Jones and colleagues that um, kind of had a similar approach of trying to estimate a, a gap between treatment capacity and receiving treatment. And that was Uh, it it really went up only until 2012. And I was finding myself really citing it all the time. Like every presentation I gave had that figure from that 2015 paper, but it did feel like a lot had changed since 2012. And there was a a remaining question that paper looked at the gap between treatment capacity. So how much kind of how much availability of buprenorphine and methadone treatment we had versus how many people potentially had opioid use disorder. Um, But we didn't really know how many people were actually getting treatment, even using those estimates. So that really motivated this research question uh, around what is really the gap between how many people are estimated to have opioid use disorder and how many are actually receiving it. And like you said, it's really hard to to estimate both of those sides of of the numbers. So that just kind of made it more interesting in terms of trying to put it together. Thanks. That's really that's really interesting, and I appreciate that distinction between not just what's the gap in terms of people with opioid use disorder and treatment capacity, but the actual care delivery uh, or receipt of care. Um, tell us a little bit about how you approached answering your main research question. 
Sure. So uh, there, this was really an iterative process, um, which uh, my amazing co-authors really contributed a lot to thinking around how to measure both opioid use disorder, which was kind of our, um, you know, our bar for trying to understand how much, you know, treatment we might want to make available or access, and then the number of people uh, who are actually getting treatment. And so for the first um, kind of how many people have opioid use disorder, this is really kind of, I think, the big question that we don't have a good answer to. And luckily, as we were writing this paper, Carrie Keyes, who's um, an epidemiologist at Columbia, who's one of the co-authors, she had been working with a team of people to actually um, kind of re-estimate the prevalence of opioid use disorder across the U.S. using different types of adjustment approaches, one of them, which is a multiplier approach that, Mark, you, uh, I know, were involved with working on in Massachusetts uh, to try and kind of estimate opioid use disorder using a different set of methods. So we thought, why not use these new estimates uh, using these adjustment methods to actually try and estimate what's probably a truer gap than what we would see using kind of traditional NISDU estimates that we kind of know are very underestimating of the number of people who, who have opioid use disorder. Um, so that's on kind of trying to understand the prevalence. And then in terms of measuring actually how many people are getting treatment, we used a combination uh, of databases. One is IQVIA data. So that's uh, data on uh, pharmacy uh, dispensing of buprenorphine. And so there we were able to really quantify the number of patients that were receiving buprenorphine for for probable opioid use disorder, although we couldn't confirm that using pharmacy claims, but it was kind of the, the closest that we could. And that's because buprenorphine, most people who receive it, uh, get it through a pharmacy, a retail pharmacy. While methadone, which uh, is confined to being dispensed at opioid treatment programs, we've we got that data from the NSATS, which is a survey of specialty substance use treatment programs. Uh, and there's a question in there that asks treatment programs to estimate how many people uh, they are serving in their facility and specifically the number of people who are receiving care from OTPs. So that's how we perceived that number of people on methadone. And we kind of combined those data. There's a lot of, you know, obviously limitations to that, but that's the best that we felt we could do in terms of trying to even get a, a near estimate of how many people were actually in care. So what did you find? The big finding is there was a very large gap between the number of people who we estimated to have opioid use disorder uh, and the number of people who are actually getting treatment uh, with either methadone or buprenorphine. And we did see that that gap decreased over the 10-year period that we looked at. So we started um, looking at data from 2010 all the way through 2019. And we uh, saw that while there was a slight decrease in that gap, by 2019, we still estimated that about 87% of people with opioid use disorder were not getting either of those medications. And we also looked at this at the state level. I didn't really talk about that. One piece we also wanted to add is we wanted to not just look at this at the national level, but also use these data that are available at the state level to try and see whether there are specific states that have more um, greater or lesser gaps and try and understand that variability as well. Um, so we saw that there was a lot of variation in terms of the treatment gap across states, but generally there was a, a pretty large gap across uh, regions. Thanks for sharing that. I'm I'm really curious, a couple things, but you know, how, how did your estimates compare to other estimates that were out there? And then kind of related, you know, this is your findings are findings that I've shared with decision makers in Oregon, where I live and work. 
to highlight the gap. And so I'm curious also sort of either what surprised you or what maybe is surprising readers um, and how folks might be using it. Yeah, sure. So I guess uh, to answer the first question about how it compared to other studies. So really, I think the only information we had about the gap, um, at least that I kind of was aware of, was estimates from NISDU. So the National Survey of Drug Use and Health does ask people whether they're receiving any medications for their substance use disorder. So from there, the estimates, I think, you know, varied based on on population and, and exactly the year, but some, somewhere between 18% and 28% of people were actually receiving medications for opioid use disorder. And our estimate was that about 13% of people were getting uh, medications for opioid use disorder. So I actually was surprised that it was quite similar. Um, I think we expected our estimate to be lower than what we would find in NISDU because we're supposedly capturing a, a larger population of, you know, uh, people who aren't necessarily housed or, or captured by the NISDU. Uh, and we were using administrative kind of real world data rather than self-report. Um, but it was still really, uh, I mean, I think as a researcher, when you can confirm other studies or kind of have some kind of rep replication with different methods, it's uh, it's a nice thing to find. So uh, that's as far as I know, like the other estimate that we have. And in terms of how these findings have been used, um, I mean, that's great to hear that you've been kind of using them to advocate for for change and and programs in Oregon. Um, I, I think that's kind of the purpose. Like I, you know, it's really to demonstrate this gap. I don't think it surprised anyone to find a gap. I don't, you know, we weren't trying to come up with something that nobody knew, but really just a way to quantify it. And I feel like when I speak with the media or policy makers or people working in policy, they always want like a number, like what is the, the, the percent? What is like the estimate? And it's really hard to say that, right? We know things are much more complicated than that, but that's why it's nice to kind of have estimated, even if it's somewhat theoretical, a number that we can use to say, look, like almost 90% of people are not getting treatment and feel relatively good about those numbers. Thanks. That's really powerful. Yeah, great. I'd love to start jumping into implications and, and talking about this gap. I think my first question for you is, do we know what the right treatment gap is or what should the target be? If, if a policymaker said, I want to go improve this, like what, what would be a reasonable goal? Is it 100%? Is it less than that? And, and where should this be? It seems abominable that 87% are not receiving medications, but what do you think about wh where we should be trying to, to take this number to? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that as well. Um, I mean, I think we can agree that it's probably not 100%, right? We don't think there's ever going to be necessarily 100% of people for, for many different reasons. And even though medications for opioid use disorder are the gold standard for opioid use disorder treatment, I think we agree that patients, you know, should have a decision to make in terms of if they want that to be part of their care, or if they even necessarily, you know, opioid use disorder is also, there's a, a lot of different situations and in, in what might qualify for, you know, opioid disorder as we're measuring it here. So, but I, I think we can confidently say that, like you said, like you mentioned, 87% is too high. And I think the goal should be to reduce that gap rather than necessarily aiming for a specific number. You know, I think we can come up with one. Like, I think, I don't know if I had to come up with one, maybe it would be nice to have 80% uh, of people or something in 90%, you know, I think we can come up with these numbers, but I think what's a little bit more meaningful is to think about 
where we do see clear gaps in, in people wanting to get some kind of treatment with these medications or access to these medications and they're not getting them or people who are interested in treatment and they're not getting these medications. So just one example that we discussed a little bit in the paper is that we know that a lot of people who are in specialty treatment for opioid use disorder, so they're seeking care, they're interested in treatment, they actually don't receive medications at all. So I think that's kind of a clear red flag. You know, those people are, you know, you, you could say maybe some people aren't interested in treatment. These folks are, are specifically going for that purpose and they're not necessarily even being offered medications. Like that's a big issue. We also have people who would be interested in getting medications if the treatment modality looked differently, if they didn't have to go to their OTP every day or every other day, if they didn't have to do multiple drug screenings every week, if they were allowed to continue using cocaine and still get their medications. Um, so I, I see that like, you know, even if it's not a hundred percent, there's a lot of places where we have clear gaps that we could be doing better. I agree with everything you just said. And one number I'll throw out that I cite often is some uh, series of studies by Michael Sign and Detox, where they ask people, are you interested in medication treatment? And one half to three quarters of patients express interest, right? So we know, uh, you know, up to three quarters of patients are actually interested in receiving MOUD, which makes it even more stark that we're seeing such low numbers. One other thing that was interesting to me in reading through this, we see so much attention to how the crisis of opioid-related harms continues unabated through the pandemic. The numbers are continue to spike. But when you look at the numbers in this paper, one thing that I found interesting is that OUD prevalence was estimated to be stable to maybe even decreasing a little bit from 2010 to 2019. And we saw more than a doubling of increase in MOUD. And those numbers taken in isolation would suggest things should be getting better. So how do we reconcile the fact that we don't have more people with OUD and we actually, even though the gap is huge, we have more treatment yet overdose deaths seem to be getting so much worse. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent question. And we did consider whether we wanted to look at overdoses in this paper and it, we kind of decided to leave it out just because it is a whole other consideration. And I think you know, one thing we we know about the overdoses that we've been seeing over the last few years is that they're mostly uh, driven by fentanyl. So, you know, the, the illicit opioid supply is just getting, or the uh, illicit drug supply in general has just been becoming more, much more potent. And so people who might have, you know, the same people who may have had an opioid use disorder and were using drugs a few years ago were not as as at risk for overdose uh, or overdose death as they are now. So I try and explain to people that, you know, the rising overdose crisis does not necessarily mean more people are using opioids uh, or, you know, more people are having or developing an opioid use disorder, but rather more people who have opioid use disorder or other or using other drugs, not even with a, you know, a qualifying as a substance use disorder are overdosing and dying, unfortunately. And I think in terms of, you know, I think that's a big question in terms of the population health impact of these medications. You know, are they making a significant dent in reducing overdose when we know from clinical studies and observational studies that they have, you know, they're very effective at reducing overdose risk. But when we have such a small proportion of the population that's receiving them, it's really hard to know whether, you know, is it people who are on medications that 
you know, there's issues around retention or people coming on and off medications. Is that part of what's driving uh, overdoses, even among people who are receiving treatment? Or is it just people who are not engaged in care at all, which we see is, is a large proportion of people? Um, so I think there's a lot of research that can be done to try and better get at some of that. Dr. Kravchik, I'm, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts and reflect on something that we were talking about earlier as it relates to really a combination of these factors of sort of what is the right target and, and how do we make systems and care more accessible? Um, and again, a, a number that I find so helpful as a point of comparison, as we've talked about, is is that in France, 80% of what's reported is that 80% of people with opioid use disorder receive medications like methadone or buprenorphine. And, you know, there certainly are sort of structural and cultural and health system differences from across countries and where there's a lot of similarities. And so I guess I'm just curious, you know, what do you make of that? How do you see, how do you see that difference and, and that opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's great to see that a country is uh, other countries might be doing better in terms of reducing that gap. I, I'm I'm not familiar with the French system and and kind of where those estimates are coming from, but I mean, I think just from uh, you know the the little I know about how other countries administer these medications and regulate these medications, like the U.S. is extremely stringent in terms of accessing buprenorphine, uh, a little bit less so with the removal of the waiver now, but still a lot of restrictions on buprenorphine as well as on methadone. You know, we can talk a, a lot about the, the methadone treatment system in the U.S., but there's really no uh, option for receiving methadone other than OTPs, which we know are very limited in terms of the, the areas that they serve, as well as kind of the conditions for getting methadone. So I I would assume, you know, we can learn a lot from what they're doing. I would love to to you know, hear more about how why they've been more successful. What what are some of the healthcare barriers? You know, we have in the U.S. Our healthcare system is already, um, you know, creates a lot of barriers for treatment even outside substance use. And, and that actually leads me to our next question for you, which is, you know, for you as a researcher, also as a as an advocate, I think you really are a shining example of someone who does such important and and practice changing research, and then also works to disseminate those findings, but also to create changes within systems. So, so what's next for you in this work? Thanks. Well, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, for me, always like the purpose of doing this work is to try and create change. And I think we're lucky um, in a sense in being researchers in this area where there is a lot of interest uh, on behalf of policymakers and the general public in terms of addressing this overdose crisis, um, I think it's really being felt. It's a, a bipartisan issue. And I think COVID really brought a lot of attention to kind of the need for, you know, better health <laughs> policy in general, but also specifically uh, around opioid use disorder. So I, yeah, really trying to kind of, how do we use this research to drive momentum? I mean, I think specifically around methadone treatment, there's been a lot of changes uh, around COVID-19 that uh, essentially increased flexibilities around receiving medications for opioid use disorder. And now there's a lot of federal attention to this. There's a bill being proposed to actually move methadone uh, into uh, pharmacies so that methadone can be dispensed from pharmacies and be prescribed by addiction licensed physicians. Uh, and there's, I, I think, you know, 10 years ago, people would never have thought that we would be here right now. So I think as a researcher in this area, really trying to take advantage of that to kind of 
use our voice in these data, um, like like this example of, you know, how really highlighting the treatment gap to say like, there's, you know, we need to do more. Um, and I've been really fortunate to be working with a group called the National Coalition to Liberate Methadone. Uh, it's a really exciting kind of grassroots group of, of researchers and clinicians, but also people who use drugs, people who are on methadone, other community advocates that really care about um, making the treatment system more accessible and are really fighting to do that. And we're actually organizing a conference this fall about methadone reform and how we can make methadone more accessible to people and, and, and more equitable as well. So I would welcome everyone to join us in New York City uh, on September 21st and 22nd if you're interested in methadone. And I understand that there's, um, there's a virtual option for folks that may not be able to travel to New York at that time. Is that right? Yes, thank you for mentioning that. So the conference will be hybrid. We will be kind of live streaming as much of it as we can. So absolutely, we welcome people from um, from everywhere to join in, whether you can travel or uh, just join online. Thanks. I'll, I'll be joining from Lyon. So I look forward to it. <laughs> awesome. Anything else you wanted to add or that you wanted to make sure you got in today, Dr. Krabchik? No, I guess just really emphasizing, I, I think something that we wanted to highlight with this paper was that I think when we talk about solutions to the overdose crisis, but especially around access to treatment, we talk a lot about availability of treatment. We talk about lack of providers and lack of programs that offer these medications. And that's definitely part of the equation, especially in more rural areas that might not have access to uh, what you know used to be buprenorphine pres- uh, wavered providers or people that are prescribing buprenorphine or offering methadone. But I think this also highlights that there are a lot of places that do have access and people are not using the treatments that are currently available. And I think that really means that we need to rethink how we're offering these medications. Are they, you know, are we just offering a treatment program that was designed based on kind of a conceptual (laughs) framework of what treatment should look like? Or do we want to think about what people who are using opioids actually need and want and would be willing to engage in. And I think what's really great about these medications is that they, they are, they are, they're effective, even if people are not completely abstinent, if they're using drugs, we still want them to be on medications um, as a way of reducing risk. Um, So I think we need to just be a little bit more open-minded about how we think of these treatments. Hope that that could go a long way. Dr. Kravchik, your your comments resonate so much with me. And um, one thing I'm compelled to share is a framework that I've thought about for years and and I wrote up with some colleagues around really how maximally disruptive current opioid use disorder care systems are. And and that that I think in large part explains some of the treatment gap that you're that you're describing, or that may explain the treatment gap that you're describing. So beyond beyond having kind of treatment slots available, the ways in which we really increase the burden of treatment and that the burden of illness is so severe for patients and really outstrips the capacity of any, of any individual. Um, and so thinking about a, a minimally disruptive framework and really thinking about not only at a policy level, but also at a practice level and an individual clinician level, you know, how are we designing care? And um, to much of your point about incorporating voices and experiences of people with lived experience, how are we including those voices to then transform and redesign care so that care can truly be more accessible and less disruptive to people's lives? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a super important point. And I think we talk a lot about policy and, and stigma, but um, I think a lot of what this, the, the system has done is also trickle down to the provider level. And that's probably not unique to substance use, but probably kind of augmented in terms of how we do substance use care. And I think what we don't necessarily do a good job is, is, is really balancing kind of minimally disruptive care. So trying to make treatment as easy as possible. Um, and instead, we focus a lot on minimizing risks, specifically risks around, uh, or, or I don't even know if to call them risks, or uh, at least perceived risks around either diversion uh, or um, continued drug use and, and consequences. There's been such a, a big emphasis on uh, doing things like urine tox screens and making sure people are abstinent and um, really kind of a mistrust with patients, I think, when it comes to substance use disorders, where um, some of that increased disruption, I feel like, comes from uh, really wanting to outweigh some of those perceived risks. And, and I think doing more training in terms of understanding what minimally disruptive care is, why that's so important, how it can outweigh some of these other risks that maybe clinicians are just more concerned about um, for, for understandable reasons also in, in terms of training and liability. And certainly, like, I think our policies don't necessarily help uh, too much in terms of reducing some of that uh, burden on clinicians. But absolutely, I think there's a lot that we can be doing at the clinic level uh, to make patients' experiences better and keep people coming back rather than feeling like they you know, cannot continue to engage in a treatment system that's not serving them and is disrupting their lives more than helping. That's fantastic. I'm going to take a shot at summarizing three things I learned today. So the first is that Dr. Kravchik and her team used multiple data sources to estimate the OUD prevalence, MOUD uptake and then a, a treatment gap and, and found that between 2010 and 2019, the prevalence of OUD in the US was reasonably uh, stable to maybe slightly declining. We saw a dramatic increase in uptake of MOUD where it more than doubled, but the gap remained really high and still 87% of people with OUD were estimated to not be receiving medications by 2019, which is just astounding. The second thing is, is the shining example of Dr. Kravchik and using this work to drive change, highlighting several potential policy areas um, to be advocating for, including keeping the flexibilities that we've gotten um, through the pandemic, and a lot of efforts to loosen restrictions around methadone treatment currently restricted to OTPs. Um, a plug for the conference this fall uh, with the National Coalition to Liberate Methadone that's in New York City with a, uh, a hybrid option. I think we'll, we'll try to find a way to link to um, this in our show notes. And then lastly, I love the last point that you made about um, our focus on access and creating access and opportunities um, with maybe not enough of a focus on creating access that's appealing um, to people because people are not availing themselves of the, of the treatment that we're offering. And we need to really take a look at how we're offering that treatment so that um, um, people who do want treatment, um, and we know there's a gap between people who want treatment and are receiving it, can actually get it. So great conversation. I'm super excited to have you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dr. Kravchik, for joining us today. 
Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it and look forward to listening to the rest of the podcast. Behind the Evidence is hosted by Honora Inglander and Mark LaRochelle. Production by Raquel Silviera. Editing by Casey Kelver. Music and cover art by Mary Tomanovich. Miriam Kamarami is the medical director of the Graken Center for Addiction and co-editor-in-chief of AOD Health, together with David Filene. Learn more about AOD Health and subscribe for free at www.aodhealth.org. Behind the Evidence is supported by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, It is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities.